You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. Last week's sermon, we talked on Exodus 32-33, basically the golden calf. We'll get into that here in a moment, but with us today, Pastor Darren Enns. How you doing? Hey, everybody. I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. Good. Pastor Drew Tarwater, how you doing? Hey, guys. Good to be with you, as always. And I'm Rob Lazzi, and we're going to dig into more of the golden calf. Drew, could you give us a quick recap of what you talked about here with the golden calf and the encounter Moses had asking to see God's glory? Yeah, just really interesting little section of Scripture. You've got God giving Moses the Ten Commandments and talking about the law and the covenant on the mountain. And while Moses is on the mountain for 40 days with God, the people get restless. They ask Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, make us something to worship. And what's interesting, and we, we touched on this before, is that it's not that they're wanting Aaron to make them some false god. The word they use is Elohim, but they want something, you know, they're so used to bowing down and worshiping these idols that they say they want Aaron to make them something that they can worship in place of the God of heaven and because they don't know what he looks like. And so while God is telling Moses how the people are to worship him on the mountain, the people are trying to create their own way of worshiping God down at base camp. So they create this golden calf. Moses comes down, sees it, gets mad, breaks the two stone tablets that the Ten Commandments are written on, throws the golden calf in the fire, sends a couple guys out with swords tied to their belts, and 3,000 people die, which that's an interesting scene. And then God sends a plague, and all this crazy stuff happens. And then we get to Exodus 33, where God says, look, I am not going to go with you to the promised land. You guys just go. And then Moses starts pleading to God, no, God, we need you to go with us. And when God says that he will, Moses then asks to see God's glory. And we see this amazing amazing situation where Moses goes up on the mountain. God has Moses stand in a certain place in a cleft of a rock covers Moses with his hand, and his glory passes by Moses. Moses turns, and he sees the afterglow of God, and his face shines so bright when he comes back down the mountain, it scares everybody. And so you have this amazing scene where Moses actually sees God's afterglow, or God's back, as God says it in Exodus 33. And it changes Moses um, and creates this really, this really uh, beautiful picture of like, what does it look like for us to pursue God's presence? No, that's interesting thing about there is like, so there's really two big questions I have out of that section is, is it, is it really the promised land of God doesn't go with you? And it sounds like Moses negotiated with God and said, Hey, wait, no, come with us still like pleaded his case and God changed his mind. So can does God change his mind? Like, what's, what are, Darren, where are we at on that? Like, is there a verbiage here that we're just missing? I... Right. The The question as we listen to that stuff and, and read those stories is like, wait, God, I thought that you were unchanging. Um, like, why, you were, if you were going to go with your people all along, 
or if you weren't, then why did you, why did you, like, why is this waffling? Why is God changing back and forth? Because as it appears in the text, God seems to change his mind. And for our, our, our ears today, a lot of us, especially who have grown up in church, we hear about God's immutability, that he does not change. And if we accept that a, a, as a true Christian doctrine, then how do we bring these texts into that umbrella where he actually does seem to change? Drew, what do you got? Yeah, it is interesting. You have these two, you have two examples of this in these two, ver- these two chapters, right? In Exodus 32, verse 14, you have God basically after the golden calf, God's like, I'm going to wipe these people out. I mean, they are just a wicked, stiff-necked people. And so Moses goes up and he says, God, please don't, please don't kill them. And God, God doesn't. Then you have in Exodus 33, where you have Basically, God said, I'm not going with you to the promised land. You guys want what I give you, but you don't want me. So you guys go to the promised land. You'll still get all the gifts, but I'm not going. And Moses is like, you know, and the people immediately, like, it says they take off all their ornaments, meaning that, like, they repent. They take off all their jewelry. They take off all, you know, I joke, they took off their Tommy Bahama shirts, and they're like, <laughs> we can't, we can't. You know, like, you need to go with us. And so God goes up, and God's like, please go with us. Or Moses goes up to God, and God, you have to go with us. And God says, well, I'll go with you, Moses. Moses says, no, 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 I need you to go with all of us. And God says, okay, I'll go. And so, yeah, is, it, is God, like, changing his mind? There's other examples in Scripture. You see in the story of Jonah. God says, Jonah, I want you to go tell the people that in 40 days I'm going to destroy the city of Nineveh. And so Jonah goes and tells them, and then they repent, and then God doesn't do it. And so some other examples, too. And so the question that, Rob, that you're asking is a great question. Does, can we convince God to change his mind? And I think you know, where I land on this, and, and I think um, you know, so, some of it, there's some mystery here. right? I think God, you know, someday we're going to get to heaven, and God's gonna, we're going we're gonna to understand this and go, oh, that's what you meant. But I think there's a difference between conditional and unconditional, um, uh, you know, threats or God's conditional or unconditional judgment. And so I think what God wants us to do is he wants to drive us to repentance and to see our sin. So when he says to Moses, hey, I'm not going with you to the promised land. Tell the people I'm not going with you. He, he's, there, there's a, there's a, it's a conditional threat. Like if you guys don't repent of your sin, I'm not going to go. And of course they do. They repent to their sin, and then you know Moses goes and, and, and asks God, God, please go with us. And God says, Okay, I'll go. So I think there's a there's a particular aspect to this. Like sometimes God is like, look, I'm gonna judge the sin of the world, and that is unconditional. I'm gonna judge the sin of the world, right? And so I'm gonna send Jesus to, to pay the penalty for that. Other times God says, I'm gonna judge Nineveh for their sin in the story of Jonah. And when they repent, that would have been conditional. Does that make sense? Uh, I a little bit. I guess one of the questions that I was thinking of as you're talking there, and I don't know if this is more for Darren or for you, Drew, so I guess whoever wants to take it, uh, is like where we talk about where God is unchanging, where do we get that as like our, like we, you know, we learned that kind of growing up in like, if you want to call it Sunday school, you know, for those of who are like who us who were born on Saturday in church on Sunday is, uh, but like, where's like, we say that, but like, what's, what's the source on that? Is there a, is there something like that? Like, I, I love talking to Darren on this because he's always like big on the, what do these words actually mean in the translation? So I'm kind of leaning on him for this. It's like, is there a translation issue with that where we're like, in our minds, we think, when we think unchanging, you know, we think, you know, hard written in stone where 
that's not what love is. Like there's a flexibility in love and things like that or just and things like that. So Derek, I'm going to throw that at you. Like, where do we get on God is unchanging? Yeah. So you have a bunch of different scriptures that say those kind of words. Uh, for example, Hebrews 13, eight says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's probably one of the most popular ones. Uh, Malachi 3, six uh, says for I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. So this scripture of God, not changing is pretty widespread around the Bible, and so it's um, it, it's a good idea to, to, to hold. But at the same time, we also have these passages that we're looking at that seems like God does change. So there's a tension here, and we, ha- we have to live in this tension um, of trying to figure out what it really is. Um, the Hebrew behind the word in 32... Uh, Exodus 32, 14, it says, then the Lord relented. That's what the NIV says. The word behind relented is nacham. And uh, that word is used often when God has a change of heart or a change of mind. It also is used sometimes when God uh, seems to regret or feel deep emotion and sadness. For example, in uh, uh, Genesis 6, in the flood story, God regrets that he made mankind or he was sorry that he made mankind. And I preached on that back in February, I think. And uh, I really tried to lean into that and, and help us see how God's, God feels emotion, uh, the same, a similar emotion that we do. And that's really comforting to us. Um, and that comfort then is also another way of translating this word nacham. It can be an idea of like being sorry. Uh, the KJV, uh, King James Version, actually translates this word here in Exodus 32, 14 as, then the Lord repented, repented with a P. And uh, that can seem a little bit odd because God doesn't need to repent of his sin. Humans repent because the language around sin is always uh, that humans need to repent. So there, there's this um, two Hebrew words are used. They almost have the same thing, but there's a specific nuance that I'll bring up. Um, for humans to repent, the, uh, the Hebrew word behind that is shuv, which means to turn around and start to go in the other direction. And I've already talked about Nacham, when God uh, seems to change. The thing is that God does not need to turn around. He does not need to change direction. He is, of course, holy. He is good. And so his changing of direction is not a complete turning around as it is with humans. Um, uh, Another thing uh, I might say, and this is from from Tim Mackey, creator of the Bible Project, because they're asked this kind of question all the time. Like, was was God trying to, to get Moses to show compassion? Like, was he playing coy? Was God playing coy to try and draw out a response of compassion from Moses? Maybe as a test to even see if God would consider his own character. Like, does, does, Hmm. is that what this text is saying? And what Simeki says is that the interesting thing about these texts is that God seems to make his will vulnerable out of a desire to partner with humanity. And so God wants humans to do his will. He wants his will to be brought about by humans. And at a certain level, we are accountable to try and bring about his will. So when we don't do that, is God's will going to be done on this earth? I think at some level it is, but that's really still the tension that we find here. That's an interesting thought there with the, you know, the two, like with the unchanging. And so I guess one of my questions, I'll throw this one at Drew is like, when we say God is unchanging, Jesus is the same today as he was, you know, forever. Is that like his, like his character qualities or like, cause like, I think sometimes maybe we weave those with actions where it's like, I can 
want to get in shape, but I can get on a bike or go on a treadmill. Both are creating the same action, but my, you know, the principle is still the same. Like, is that, that's probably the worst example I could possibly use for something like this. <laughs> but uh, is that something similar, Drew, where it's like his qualities are the same, but, you know, there's more than one solution to the problem. Yeah, I think when God says he's, he's unchanging, you know, I think it's the, exactly what you said about character. So God's character, God's qualities, God's attributes don't change. God is all holy and God is all good and God is all knowing. What God wants is what's best for humanity, humanity to flourish, and God knows his plan is what's best. So I think so. You know, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and will be forevermore. And so, you know, God's not going to change who he is. Where I do think what we see in some of this tension, as Darren said, I think that it's a great way of saying it. You know, God is sovereign. God knows what needs to happen. But we also have responsibility as people to, to live out God's will, right, make the decision. So I think because he is our Heavenly Father and he is a God of love, but also a God of judgment, he wants to help us to make those decisions. And so I think of it like this. You're driving down the road with your kids and your kids are just punching each other in the backseat. Or when you were a kid and you were punching your brother or your sister, what did your parents say to you? If you don't stop right now, we're going to what? Turn around this car and go home, right? Now, chances are your dad really didn't want to turn the car around and go home, right? Like we're, you're like 30 minutes from St. Louis. Like you're almost there. <laughs> but there was a threat. He wanted to get you to see that you needed to change. I think that's what's going on in a lot of this. God wanted the people of Israel to see that they needed to change. God wanted Moses as the mediator of the people. He needed Moses. He wanted Moses to step in for the people. It's not just Moses can just stand there and go look at those people. Oh, look at these people and all that they do. No, Moses, it's your responsibility as the mediator to step in. And so I think that some of that in God's character of being our Heavenly Father, of love and compassion, he wants to help us see that we have a responsibility to repent and change our actions too. But I think there's a second thing going on as well. I think because he's our Heavenly Father, he wants us to come to him. So God knows what we need. But just like as, I, as a dad, I, want, I know what my girls need, but if there's something they really want, I want them to come to me and ask me too. And I think there's this aspect of God as our Heavenly Father. He wants us to pursue Him and His presence and, and, and a relationship there. And so sometimes He'll use these situations to help draw us in closer to Him as well. So God doesn't change His character or His attributes. But I think He will allow certain situations to happen to actually change us. So I'm going to rephrase the question here. Does God change his mind? So my answer on that is no. <laughs> God doesn't change his mind. changes us. My answer on that is not necessarily yes, but that's what the, some scriptures in the Bible seem to say. So like, like Drew and I, are, I think, are living in the tension. We just come out on slightly different angles of that, which is okay. We, I still work for him, so I submit. <laughs> when you say him, are you capital H or lowercase? <laughs> uh, well, capital H first, but then I also work for little, little H Drew. <laughs> uh, so, like, some of the questions and all this, and especially in the stories, like, is, you know, with Moses, especially going up to go, going to talk to God, like, what an, ex first off, what an experience that must be to even be able to see, like, the back of God. Like, I think if it was an Elijah on the mountaintop, too, like, he, when God, I call it the God parade, where God passed by, <laughs> and you're like, and I think if I, once again, I'll rely on Darren here, I'm putting him on the spot here, but like the translation is almost like the sound of utter silence when God came by, like almost like an utter vacuum. Mm. 
Uh, d- does the does the Bible say stuff about how how it sounded, or is that scripture? Well, Here remember, like in that story with Elijah, where like the fire came by, the storm came by, and then oh broke. yeah, yeah. And so you heard the still small voice of God. Yeah, it's like in the silence. I mean, God God shows up in the thunder and the lightning, and in the silence. So I I don't know. I think God does what He wants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this time when He comes by, He's He's like He's proclaiming, He's shouting. Who he is? He's preaching a sermon. Yeah. Wow. Just yeah. So you know, if Moses was able to talk to God like face to face, like why did God say he can't look upon him in life? Yeah, it's it really it's it's really good that this, and this is where the Hebrew comes in um, and, and understanding the Hebrew. And so one of the things that Moses would do this was before the tabernacle was built. cloud of a pillar of cloud would come down over the tent of meeting and people knew God was in there talking to, to Moses and it does say that Moses and God talked face to face this was a it's a basically it's like a metaphor right that says that you know this was they were personally connecting so that, you know, he wasn't seeing him face to face but but there was this personal connection Moses and God were, were speaking together uh, there was this they were there with one another but Moses wasn't actually seeing God. And so when, when Moses, when God says to Moses, well, you want to see my glory, but here's the thing is you can't actually look upon me and live. We're seeing this aspect of like the purity of God's holiness, the purity of God's power. Um, so while Moses couldn't see God face to face, he would allow him to see his glory. And, and, I, and I, I mentioned it was like one commentator said it was like God's afterglow or in Isaiah chapter 6, um, Isaiah sees the train of God's robe. And so we don't know really what Moses saw on the mountain when he was in the cleft of the rock and he turned and looked. Um, but whenever the Bible says that Moses or someone spoke face-to-face with God, it's just, that, it's just that word picture that talks about like that personal connection with God, being able to personally, personally conversate with God. Uh, but but it, 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 you know, God and who he is and his attributes, um, you know, God's all it was too powerful for Moses to look upon, which is the beautiful piece that leads us to what we see in the New Testament with Jesus coming and actually revealing the glory of God, where we can look upon Him face to face. No, it's that's, it's interesting to think about, especially with like then you know God becoming man, so that we could actually you know converse with Him in that sense, and the you know the human body, however that works. Once again. I have no idea. That's why I talk to you guys. <laughs> so, so, so I've got something I can chime in. Yeah, Sorry, I, yeah. I took a break because I was just looking at the Hebrew there. I don't know if there's anything fancy. I, I'm look. The word for face is panah, and when it says face to face, it's actually plural faces, faces to faces. Uh, panim el panim, uh, up there in the, at the end or the beginning of verse of chapter thirty-three. But then in uh, Exodus thirty-three twenty. Um, God said, you can endure the sight of my face. It's a singular face there. So it's like they're talking faces to faces. I think that's that Hebrew idiom that Drew is talking about there. Hmm. Um, yeah, for, or, or else you, you will die. Like, you can't handle it. So anyway, that's what I was going there. But, okay, back to what I was going to say. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures that relates to this is 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 3. Um so this whole episode of, of Moses seeing the fate or seeing the back of God, experiencing God's presence like no one else had before, causes him almost to be transformed into something new. Like his face starts shining. That's weird. 
That hasn't really happened before. And when he comes down the mountain, the Israelites are so taken aback that Moses has to put a veil over his face because the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses and like contemplate what was going on. They couldn't understand, grasp, or even look at him because he was so bright. So Moses' face was shining. Well, why was it shining? What was the whole thing with that? Uh, The Apostle Paul comments on this in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, starting at verse 12. Um, I'll read this here. So here's 2 Corinthians 3, 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds, that is the Israelites' minds, were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, and it's talking about us as Christians, we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. This is the verse that Drew quoted. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And so the idea is that we who are in Christ, if we're in Christ, we don't have to have this veil over our faces. We can see God almost face to face uh, in a very much more real way that the Israelites in the Old Testament, especially at this episode, could not. That there's a veil that's kind of covering their hearts. There's something that still has control over them that Hmm. they really can't contemplate and and get out of and so now in the new testament because we're in christ that veil is removed and we can interact with god we can know god in really intimate ways is that part of symbolic with the veil in the temple when jesus was crucified uh sure it could be um the main thing that i think of there is that god's god's presence was dwelling there and it was a veil that was separating them and because that was torn now god's presence goes out into the world you know representative of the holy spirit so yeah i think it's pretty close and one of my favorite things about this, too, is it just shows God's mercy and God's grace for us. That while we couldn't look upon, you know, Moses wanted to see God more than anything. He wanted to see God's face. And he, he um, you know, he says, God, show me your glory, because there's nothing more than I wanted to be in your presence. And God in his glory and grace to us shows us all of, his, all of himself through Jesus. And so Jesus comes down, he takes on bodily form, and he shows us the glory of God. And I love where Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when Jesus walked on this earth, he was fully God, but yet fully man. And he shows us God's glory. And it was, it was at that point where he says, okay, now you can see me face to face because of what I've come to do, you, to do for you as I go to the cross and rise from the grave. And now, as, since the veil has been torn, you and I can, can pursue God and his presence at all time because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Just such a beautiful mercy and grace that God gives us when Jesus came and he reveals God's glory to us. So as Christians, we, we have this amazing reality sometimes we miss, that we can be, you know, quote-unquote, face-to-face with God whenever we want. We, we don't need a mediator anymore because Jesus Christ has come and he's become the mediator for us. And so Because of the Holy Spirit, we can now walk in God's presence. So it's such a beautiful reality. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing. And Drew, you talked about it too. You mentioned the Hebrew. Props to you in your sermon. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> um, and and the, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, or sometimes kaved, depending on context. Um, and, and you talked about this idea of weightiness, and that's exactly right. This is quickly 
becoming or has become my favorite Hebrew word because it's everywhere. It just shows up so much, so many times. And I've talked about it before, uh, the hardening uh, of Pharaoh's heart and that kind of stuff. Uh, so the idea behind kavod or kaved is that if you have two scales and uh, in the ancient Near East in the marketplace, uh, if you were to buy something um, and you have coins, you would put your coins on one side and then on the other side, uh, every person who was who, who had those scales would have exact weights and measures and they would put the exact amount of weight on one side so that your silver or your copper coins, whatever it was, would equal the same. And so that you did, you weren't like shaving parts off of your copper coins to make more copper coins on the side. It had to be the exact amount of, of what they wanted. So if you put God on one side of these scales, there was nothing that you could put on the other side that would equal or outweigh God. God was always infinitely more weighty. He had more mass. He was more worthy. Uh, and he was worth more than anything that you could put. The entire world could not outweigh God on those scales. And so when God displays his glory... That's what he's displaying, his weightiness, his worth, and everything that, that he is. So if we think about glory, sometimes we think about like this radiance, like sunbeams coming off of him. That's a different word, Shekinah glory, which you might have heard. That's more of an idea that the rabbis created um, in, in Jesus's time. It's a different word for God's radiance that had to do with his presence for sure. You mean the, the cloud of fire and the cloud the cloud of, of cloud. <laughs> um that there is radiance there for sure, but that's that the more idea, the bigger idea behind God's glory is how how much more worthy He is than anything else in this world. No, that's interesting to think about with the with the with the verbiage there and like how you know with the weight and the scale, especially with like the, the how they how that's used in like salvation. There's nothing we can do to you know outweigh what God's done for us. Yeah, we can't put anything in those scales to for him to save us. Yeah, that, that's a good application too. So one thing I wanted to ask, Drew, you mentioned it earlier with God basically threatening not going to the promised land and like sort of going back with the changing of the mind, like is like sort of like, hey, you know, we're going to turn this car around. If you don't, if you guys don't, it's like what, uh, it's like hypothetically, Darren doesn't go into the hypotheticals here, so I won't ask him. <laughs> like, what, Coming to the right place. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where would, I'm learning slowly, Darren, at least I, I go for, I go for translations and to you and I go to hypotheticals for Drew. And then uh, like, what would have happened if they went without God? I'm like, okay, well, if you don't want to go, you promise this to us. Like what would have, would it really be, is it just the land all of a sudden or is it still the promised land? I think that's a great question. There is some, some, um, some hints to this in Exodus 33. And so when he says, I'm going to, I'm going to send you the promised land and, but I'm not going with you because you're a stiff necked people. Moses then says in Exodus 33, that if you don't go with us, how are we going to be any different than the other nations? Um, and so he says the, uh, I believe it's 16, uh, Exodus 33, 16 he says, for, well, how are, how is it going to be known that I found favor in your sight? And if you're not going with us so that we are distinct, how are we going to be different from any other people on the face of the earth? So what he's saying is, is, is exactly what you just asked. If we go to the promised land, but you're not with us, then we are just like everybody else. What makes us any different? And what makes the promised land any different? Moses is saying, the, what makes the promised land great is you, God, going with us. And I, I think that is a, a beautiful insight because, yes, if they would have gone to the promised land, they would have moved into houses they didn't build. They would have had ranches full of cattle. They would have had all these great things, but God wasn't there. And so what would have made that any different than anything else? It wouldn't have been the promised land. It just would have been a piece of earth with more resources on it. 
than where they currently were. And so Moses, you know, very correctly identifies that what makes it the promised land is that, yes, we have all these beautiful things that God gives us, but it's God being with us in that place that makes it different than anywhere else on the earth. Oh. Any hypothet- hypotheticals there for you, Darren? Uh, I've got concrete things about what Moses said. <laughs> I, I mean, back in, I, I'm more familiar at this point with uh, uh, 32, 1 through 14. Um, Moses has a two-pronged attack where he uh, has some similar things that, he's, that Drew just said later on. Um, Moses says, well, hang on, like, um, what, and this is from chapter 32, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe off the face of the earth? Uh, it's, it's essentially saying, God, if you do this, then your name and your reputation is going to be tarnished because you brought your people out and then they died in the desert. Like, that's not going to be good for you. Your name is going to not be, not be, um, promoted among the nations. Um, and, uh, the other one is, is just, he reminds him of his promise. Verse 13, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So it's like, God, you promised this. And, uh, if you don't do this, then the nations are going to think bad of you. And that's not what you want either. So really convincing Moses does a great job of trying to convince God and change his mind. And it works. Yeah. No, it's always interesting to think about in that where it's like, we go back to, you know, the tension of God changing his mind. Mm-hmm. And, and we're back full circle. Well, yep. And it's like, I mean, I do, like, so then there's a lot of tensions in the Bible in general, like we kind of deal with where we just don't have a great answer, kind of like the Trinity and, you know, where God, God being fully man and fully God all in one, like, what would you, how would you help guide someone that is struggling in those tensions to sort of go, Hey, you know, it's, you know, we don't know everything. How do we, how'd you help them out? Yeah, I think, and I spent a long time walking this journey, and so it is, it is a, a challenge to wrestle with this. And f- for me, what really, after wrestling with this for quite some time, what really, um, really kind of led me to this place where I just kind of had to, to give in to the fact that that God is all holy, but yet we also have a responsibility to to to, to respond. And, and God has a plan for our life, and this is the best plan, and this is what God wants for us, and we need to, to live that out. Yet God is still going to accomplish his purposes. And so there is this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility to believe and to respond. And people have tried to make sense of this through so many different camps of theology. And, you know, are we robots and God does all of it, or is it all on us and I think it's it, these two ideas run parallel to each other. Yes, God is sovereign, and what God's purposes, God's purposes are going to be accomplished. But yet, at the same time, we have a responsibility to believe and to respond. And so, there's a there is a tension in the middle, as we've talked about today, and that tension is only known by God. You know, Isaiah and and, and Paul write in Romans 11 that you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. God is unsearchable. So God understands how all this works together. The key for us is to, to rest in the fact that there are things we don't know. There is mysteries in God, but we know that God's in control and that God's going to accomplish his plan, but that God also calls us to follow and to live out his plan in our lives. We have the responsibility to believe and, and to, to live out God's plan. And so there's a tension we have to rest in, and it takes some time to lean into that. But if we can rest in the fact that God is good, then we know that God has our best interest in mind, and I believe we can live into that tension. Yeah, my final resting place comes a bit out of my 
uh, my, my own personal testimony, because uh, I lived for a long time not really understanding that tension and thinking that God had it all wrapped up in his own will and it was just being done and I didn't really have an involvement in that. But when I had discovered through some, some people teaching me and also through finding this for myself in the scriptures, that God really does desire our, our obedience. And it was only after coming to that realization, um, one, that God desires it, and two, that God has given us the power to actually do it through the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's something that the, the ancient Israelites were lacking. Uh, God's presence was with them, but it was not in them, uh, which is a different distinction there. And so we have that power to, to be obedient and to carry out God's law to the full. And God expects us to, and he wants us to. And that idea has brought me out of, of some deep, dark sin and, and, and to this place where I am today in seminary and hopefully one day becoming a pastor. I guess I am a pastor now, but it's part-time. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's kind of my, my own personal testimony is that God, God gave us the power and he wants us to do it. No, it's an interesting thought too, because then you go like, where does it, you mentioned earlier too, Darren, where, you know, where God wants to work through humanity to get his will done. So is that you know, that old story of going, you know, where God wants me to go do this, but like, I don't, there's always that, you know, what work, what do our hands and feet have to do where, you know, that's his will, but what, what are we actually doing with the skills we have that he's given us? Yeah. I just thought about a, a fun story. So uh, I grew up on a farm. If you're new to the podcast, you might not know that. If you have listened to the podcast, I talk about it way too much. Um, <laughs> But uh, so if I'm doing the will of my dad, my dad tells me to go out to this field and do this work, whether it's swath this grass, bale this hay, cut this field, till this ground, whatever it is. So I go and do it. Well, if I don't do a very good job, then my dad kind of has to deal with the consequences and he has to go back and fix it or go back and tell me to do it correctly or something might not just grow as good where I didn't till the ground effectively. And I wonder if that's a little bit about how, how God does that. Like the relationship between my dad and I as I go out and farm, is that how God does? Like God sometimes has to deal with our crummy efforts as humans and he has to find the good out of it and, and make do. I don't know. Yeah, this is a good picture. I, I do really, you know, I love that quote by David Platt that says, you know, God's plan for the world is the church. You know, the church is God's plan A for the world and there's no plan B. God uses human agency to accomplish his purposes. So we can't sit back and just trust that somebody else is going to do it. But we also know that God, that, that God is going to accomplish his goal. So I think it's a really good picture, Darren. Like God calls us to go, yet we know God's in control. So God's going to make sure it gets done. That doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility to do it. We do. But we know that God's ultimately bigger and, and stronger and can accomplish his goals. And so. There is a lot of onus on us, you know, with your question, Rob, that I think the, the God does desire our, our, our obedience and um, His Holy Spirit gives us the power to do it. But we have to take the call seriously that it's our call to go and to pursue His mission. Yeah, no, it's like that whole, it's the whole adage of, I think, again, where it's like, you know, where if God wants us, it'll happen. But like He's asking us to, He worked, like Darren was saying, work through humanity to get it done. Where, you know, Darren's like in the steps of, you know, becoming a pastor, through, you know, going through the classes to do it. It's not like, oh, God wants me to be a pastor. He'll make it happen. And I'm going to go keep doing what I'm doing until, you know, the steps are, you know, until he makes me a pastor. It's like you have to go through the work of, you know, developing the, you know, the skills and the what you need in the learning process to go do it, whether it's becoming a pastor or any profession. Yeah. And if God's calling you into that. So it's, it's just right. where 
I think we see it like on day to day stuff easily, but then when all of a sudden when God's like, Oh yeah, hey, go tell the go tell the world about me, you're like, Yep, Drew's got that one. That's in his world. <laughs> <laughs> that's someone else's that's someone else's fear. So but no, it's interesting to think about. So any party thoughts here as we wrap this up? Uh, we'll start with Darren. Nah, I, we I think we already got long winded. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, any parting thoughts? You know, next week we'll get into the tabernacle, and so God communicating how to worship Him through uh, through worship and and, and really see the the sacrifice, uh, the, the, you know, the law around sacrifice, sacrificing animals and those kind of things. So it's going to be interesting as we talk about the tabernacle because it's going to point us again towards Jesus becoming. Jesus coming and taking that place. And so, man, this Sunday is going to be gospel rich. So definitely don't miss it. No, absolutely. If you have questions or you'd like, you'd like, you'd like to have them answered, uh, send them to us here at life at forefrontchurch.tv or free at forefront on Sundays. You can drop the questions in the boxes in the back of the worship center. We'd love to hear from you, the questions, the tensions you have and how we can, you know, see how we can help you with those. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Pastor Darren Enns, Pastor Drew Tarwater, and I'm Rob Lazzi. Thank you so much. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.